0: What's good? What's going on? Welcome back to another episode of the Hogshaven podcast powered by SB Nation. You can find us at hogshaven.com, at hogshaven on Twitter and on Facebook. I'm your host, Molly Maul. Jamal Force. you can find me on Twitter at Let Maul Tell It. Do not forget the you. <laughs> on the show today, you know what this is as a further review. Uh, typically, I plan to have a guest throughout the week, but um, this one is myself is solo man and we're reviewing and giving our final grades I am on you know the previous week the Detroit Lions and a quick preview or insight into to Philly uh, as we officially gear up for Philly versus Washington for week three um, I think the thing is you know as we look into exactly what's going on with Washington there are several areas of improvement. Obviously the defense starts at the top um like there's a ton of conversation following the fallout from the Detroit Lions game you know you have that conversation about Jamin Davis you know the pressure that they're putting on him Ron Rivera is specifically because he did it twice uh Jack Del Rio did it one time but the pressure that Ron Rivera and the coaching staff is putting on Jamin Davis publicly through the media um and not necessarily you know shifting or or pointing out other individuals and Uh, You kind of wonder, like, what type of pressure is the coaches feeling uh, to, one, perform better on that side of football, but two, make sure that their first round pick, their investment, their decision to pick Jamin Davis in that first round uh, to make sure that that pans out in itself as well. So for me, defensively, you know, as we, you know, before we get into everything specifically, defensively, you know, those issues uh, are beginning to rear its head and you you wonder exactly what the true issues are are like beyond the surface level. Like we know that Jamie Davis isn't playing good. We know that the defense isn't playing good. But what is the root cause of these guys? And obviously the first thing outside of that is the coordinator. But if you look at the coordinator side, um, that's not even getting down to the root cause. The root cause goes beyond the coordinator. It goes beyond the players themselves who are playing plower, right? It goes to the decision-making it goes to the talent scouting. It goes beyond the coaches. It goes to the players that they select, the reason, uh, the reason why they select them, and then also the decisions that they don't make, the actual decision to not pursue free agents on the defensive side of the football, to not bolster up anything on the first, second, or third level in terms of uh, veteran talent, right? You're bringing in these younger guys um, that you want to mold and develop, but you're not bringing in guys who are proven who can make an impact, who you know can make an impact. So for Washington, it's a multi layered issue. Dakota, I'm going to need you to relax. <laughs> that is my dog in the background. Uh, but it's a multi layered issue that goes beyond players and coaches. Obviously, the players are playing poorly, right? But who selected them? Who chose not to select some in free agency, and then how are the players that you do have? How are they being coached, and how are they executing? That is a ton of things, right? And you have to you have to peel back the layers, and it starts from uh, some things that's out of our control at this point. So, if you're asking, you know, what can the defense do? It's an issue that's in season that you're you're probably beyond a fix at this point. Sure, you can fire Jack Del Rio, right? And that was a conversation immediately after the game. Should Jack Del Rio be fired? Two weeks into the season? My answer is no. Um, I think the reason why now, personally, I think that Jack Del Real should be fired, but should Jack Del Rio be fired after two games, to be clear, my answer is no. The reason why uh, you don't want to do that right now is simply because you're looking at 15 more games <laughs> If Jack Del Rio, excuse me, if Jack Del Rio is fired, you're looking at 15 more games where you have to hope that your replacement, a lot of people assume Chris Harris, uh, is competent enough to, to withstand the 15 game season for him. Or if you put a replacement in and you have Ron Rivera calling the plays and calling the shots on defense, Ron Rivera is betting on himself that he can do a better job than Jack Del Rio. And ultimately, if either one of those decisions fail, right, and you think that it's time for a new voice and that new voice isn't effective, or if you're going to take over, you're going to put a, a new coordinator in that place, but you're going to call the plays on defense and things like that, and, and you're not effective, it's a reflection on a decision that you made, you being the head coach. So would you want to bank on that being the case after f- for, for a full 15 games, basically the whole season? No, you don't want to do that. So you want to make sure that you give Jack Del Rio every opportunity that you can to allow him to turn this around. The question from outside of everybody or outside of the coaching staff, the question is, do you have faith in Jack Del Rio to do it? I mean, my answer is no. <laughs> I don't. That's not going to change. And I'm sure most of you all's answer is no as well. Like the decision that Jack Del Rio, uh, has in terms of like either I get it done or I'm gone like it's probably more one-sided than he would like to believe <laughs> um and for Ron Rivera the same thing I'm going to stick around I'm going to keep him around which is probably the smart chess move because you don't like you're out of you're out of scapegoats if you fire Jack Del Rio this early so to keep him around is a smart chess move give him every opportunity to to fix this around and I think the question is at that point again we answered if we had faith or not you answered I'm I would bet that you said no. For me, I said no. I don't have faith. But then you ask, like, what is the timing? What would be right if you wanted to move on from Jack Del Rio in season? A lot of people assume that if you got rid of Jack Del Rio, or if you held on to Jack Del Rio too long in the year, that the losses would pile up. If you hold on to Jack Del Rio, the assumption isn't that losses will pile up. It shouldn't, that shouldn't be the assumption. You can win games with bad defenses. You can be 500 at the point in which you fire Jack Del Rio. You can be four and four. You'll be three and four. You can be five and four. You'll be four and three. You can also be, you know, one and five. <laughs> Fingers crossed that doesn't happen. Or one and six. But my point is the assumption in that you're going to lose games, all your games, if you hold on to Jack Del Rio for a long period of time. Uh, that is not going to happen. I don't think that Washington is going to lose what they just lost their first game. I don't think Washington is going to lose five in a row or six in a row. And I'm giving him an eight-week window to fix things because this is the same defense over the past two years, 2020 and 2021, that struggled in the same areas in which they're struggling. I know statistically you'll look at that 2020 defense and say, hey, they were really good. Y'all are tripping. But guess what? When you play backups and quarterbacks and offensive lines, you're going to look good, especially if you have a good defensive line or, or a talented defensive line, all those draft picks. You're going to look good. You need to dominate those, those games. You need to dominate those offenses. But when you play a team that's just as talented, if not better, and having a an Hall of Fame quarterback <laughs> uh, that you're playing up against, and even in, in instances Russell Wilson that year, uh, and that Seahawks offense and some other offenses, like the at that point, Sean McVay and Jared, Jared Goff, when you have those opportunities against better offenses, you got to understand what happens at that point. And for Washington, in that 2020 defense, they struggled against the better teams. So fast forward, again, eight-game window because you know what you're seeing is a semblance of the last year and the year before that. You don't have to wait a whole 17 games to see what the outcome is going to be for Del Rio. If you're still within the season's reach of trying to win first place in your division, if you're still in reach of trying to uh, uh, clinch a wild card spot, you make the decision at that point and you hope that you can overcome or hold on for the, the second half of the season with. Uh, Chris Harris or whoever else, assistant coaches, you want to elevate for coordinator, interim coordinator, and you hope that Ron Rivera is making the right calls and the right decisions defensively uh, from a week-to-week basis now that Jack DeReal is out of the picture. From a field standpoint, I think the the issue with this defensive line um, is that, you know, obviously injuries played a part, right? And obviously, when you look at the, the run game, um, this was a, a game where Fidarian Mathis could have really had an impact. Um, they, they played their single package, their five-man down, uh, five-down linemen front, right? <clears throat> they played it off and they played it from the get-go. But at that point, when you play that situation, you know, Fidarian Mathis is out, you have to shuffle your linemen, um, and you got new guys in, Right? But that first that first level defense um, they had their issues uh, at times they weren't able to sustain against double teams when your three techniques are, are being picked on or targeted. Uh, I think one of the one of the guys who were new in terms of like the amount of usage he was you know he was asked to, to have and the, the role that he played in defense um, FA Obata uh, was picked on on a couple of occasions that led to some some of Detroit's bigger runs. Uh, he wasn't able to sustain against double teams, um, right? He was knocked out of his gap with ease. Uh, uh, so at times, they sent motions. <laughs> I'm sorry. Before I even get to the the motions, FL about At times, they they lured him in in terms of uh, being able to 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 use power runs and traps to get him out of position, out of running gaps. Uh, they made he made the job easier for Detroit, uh, and obviously. The starters up front at times lost at the point of attack to like the offensive line that really, from a backup in depth standpoint, they weren't the starters. Like that was an injured offensive line and they executed with perfection uh, or for the most part against Washington and created stress on that defensive line. And now you have the second level, how motions were able to get them out of position, get them flowing one way or creating conflict in terms of gap assignment, right? Right. The linebackers, Jamin Davis, Cole Holcomb, David Mayo, they had problems in terms of filling their gaps when the motion played a part and testing their principles, their integrity. This is something where you look at that defense, and um, you know, I, I, I was able to, you know, speak on the radio, and unfortunately, I was, I felt, I felt a little rushed in the sense of like trying to get all my points off. So I, I talked on, talked about this on the radio. Uh, but I didn't go into too much detail, uh, more so surface level. When you look at how Washington, the run support was, was playing a factor or, or playing a factor in terms of the, the, the gaps and the issues, right? You will have at times the front line playing well. And then again, emotion would get them out of position. And now you're, you're trying to f- figure out where the, the second level support is. Well, they're already out of the play, Right. You're trying to figure out what's going on with these guys because they're out of the play. Uh, or your third-level support in terms of Derek Forrest, uh, Percy Butler, Kendall Fuller. On the 50-yard run, the first 50-yard run, it looked like Derek Forrest... I mean, you have Buff- Buffalo nickel situation. Percy Butler's playing the nickel. He's in the box. And from a processing standpoint, you want these guys to react a little bit quicker. Kendall Fuller was in good position, right? But ultimately, he loses the football. He doesn't know where DeAndre Swift is at. So when... Percy Butler is approached by a climbing offensive lineman. And he's unable to take on that guy, uh, first and foremost, but also uh, not really able to press the hole in terms of like making that a, a more difficult area for DeAndre Swift to work in. He's out of the play. Derek Forrest is late in crashing, so he's unable to help. He gets there, but he's late. And then Kendall Fuller, uh, because, again, he has backside support but also loses the football – he doesn't know that DeAndre Swift is right next to him and about to break one through for 50. So the run support on all three levels was a problem against Detroit. And the issue in last year and where I was getting to with the point about the radio hit, like, over time, like, this has always been a problem with this defense in terms of how uh, the second-level fits were unable to, or or were improper throughout the entire season last year for the most part, right? Uh, Jamin Davis in the preseason, a lot of people, including myself, talked about how Jamin Davis was playing good. Like, preseason training camp, he was playing good. Um, The issue in preseason is that when you limit your exposures to as many times as you have to really see how effective he is in the run game or if things are actually still problematic, when you don't play him as much in the preseason – or when you don't play your team as much in the preseason, because it's not just Jamin Davis, right? But when you play, when you don't play your team as much in the preseason, you don't know how true those issues are. And sure, they're not scheming against uh Jamin Davis and the defense in preseason to an extent in which they're they're truly going to be tested on their gap discipline. Some of these plays are basic, but if you're, for example, if we throw out 10 snaps, if you had 10 preseason snaps, and now all of a sudden your 10 preseason snaps, you look really good and And then in the the regular season, you're seeing 50 snaps, right? It dramatically increases the opportunity for mistake if you didn't see how he was handling certain looks in the preseason. So I say that to say this entire second level, they're having issues in run support. They're having issues maintaining gap integrity. Just as good, just as much as this, uh, this front line, the defensive line is, second level and third level run support is problematic. How do you fix that? Your guess is as good as mine. That was my response. <laughs> but no, seriously, how do you fix that? Um, it's, it's hard to say that, uh, this problem can be fixed truly with just a coaching. Uh, I mean, obviously, coaching is important. I don't want to you know, bypass that. But it's hard to say that coaching will truly just fix the problem. And that's why I started this show off with the root cause, right? Like, what you, what your card is, what your cards are, when week one hits, when September 11th hits, and then when that 1 p.m. kickoff hits, the cards that you have is what you're dealt with. And you got to live with the decision that you made in the offseason. Sure, you can bring in talent, right? It's never over in terms of trying to fix things up and recognizing that you need help. Like think about the the guys that Washington brought in to help him off the defensive line. They brought in two younger guys who are in their first year of playing football in terms of the NFL. One of them were cut. And then the next guy you have he played a couple snaps against uh the Detroit Lions. And I wanna say his name was let's find out. I don't know, I don't remember his name. <laughs> Uh, but but you get my point. You get my point right now. I don't have his name, um, but I'm sure obviously as you're listening, you'll know exactly who I'm talking about. The nose tackle, the slash, the one tech guy, you know, exactly what I'm talking about. But my point is, these younger guys you're bringing in, um, they don't have any NFL experience. So it's a layered problem. And how do you fix that? Uh, you can't. Uh, coaching can only take you so far. It's the talent that's problematic. It's the execution problem. That's problematic. It's the reminder uh, or gap discipline that that is really creating problems with this defense. And as many times as they can stress that you all got to play better, it's on the defensive line and also the second and third level to play better and and fill in uh, for run support uh, on a better level. The amount of times in which uh, Washington can see themselves get out of position or get out leveraged, right, that is something that is hard to really account for and and it's two weeks in and you hope that things can turn around and uh, play. they can play better. But ultimately, when you talk about solutions, uh, it's going to be a little difficult uh, with with Percy Butler being in the Buffalo nickel role where Cam Curl would traditionally be. Uh, you hope that Cam Curl's return, who is finally cleared to practice and play. You know, Cam Curl can probably play better, better in the box than Percy Butler. I, and it's not probably for me, to be more honest. It's actually the fact that he can do it. And I think that Percy Butler uh, can eventually play that post spot. But Cam 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 Curl, his his presence in the box is more of a physical guy. He can sniff out the run a little bit better. He's more in tune with his gaps. He can play, the, He can, and he's more instinctive too as well in terms of diagnosing on a quicker rate than that of a Percy Butler, right? So ultimately, those are some of the issues and in gap integrity. Coverage-wise, the breakdowns that they had, it's hard. Uh, again, it's when you have about five miscommunication issues, right? Five in a game in which a quarterback throws for uh, what, four, thirty-four times? Five breakdowns is uh, problematic. I mean, excuse me. It's not that it's not that high of a number, excuse me. But those five, if you if you get three of those in which Jared Goff finds. And three of those go for big gains, explosive plays. That's problematic. And coverage breakdowns happen sometimes. And, and then sometimes players get beat. And it's on the offense to take advantage of that. And Detroit tested them early, was able to run the bunches thing, the the concept that everybody's talking about, how they were able to get open on bunches and how miscommunication efforts for Washington on defensive side of football, they weren't able to pick up uh, the assignments in bunches. They were able to take advantage of that. And when you have like five or six coverage breakdowns in one game from from miscommunication, not from actual skill standpoint, but from miscommunication, that is a large number. And that is something where you don't really see much from good defenses. You don't see coverage breakdowns to that degree. Five is a lot when you talk about miscommunication. And for Washington, when you're trying to figure out how do you fix that, uh, they need to fix it quick. Uh, and, and that's, that's me speaking to obvious, right? They need to fix it quick. But the the thing is, um, some of this stuff can really be simplified when you have effective communication in practice, effective communication in your film sessions, and, and also see the looks in practice. Like you're going to see the looks in practice. So how is it that when you step into the field, you have those five miscommunication or five miscommunications that lead to a man running free, Right. That's that's the problematic side. So in totality, the number isn't a lot. But in reality, five can be uh, huge for a game, a huge swing for a game. And you hope that your quarterback, the quarterback that you're up against, does not find them, does not see it. Or you hope that your pressure gets home because that's what happened in Jacksonville. Pressure got home a lot and it mitigated the breakdowns, whether it's from communication or whether it's from actual understanding your assignment or or understanding how to play a certain technique. So grades after the defense, uh, Del Rio, <laughs> uh, D, defensive line, C minus, linebackers, D, defensive backs, uh, from a collective, there was some some people who played well, um, but from a collective, defensive backs, uh, C minus, like. Poor, poor game from the defense, man. Um, and effort was the, bigger, the biggest thing with these guys is how do you really overcome some of these these issues? And uh, that 3rd and 15 was probably the one where you're like, you want to see better effort. You want to see, uh, obviously, Derek Forrest in a better position to make a play. Um, and then uh, pursuit angles, Bobby McCain. I, I don't think, like, you know, when DeAndre Swift cut back inside, I don't think that was really on DeAndre uh Bobby McCain because he can't anticipate that there's nobody to his right. He just knows that he's crashing down on DeAndre. And DeAndre sees that there's nobody to his left. So that would be uh Bobby McCain's right. Uh he doesn't he sees that there's nobody there and he makes a play. And there you go. Now he's off to the races. Offensively um this one is a mixed bag so I think that Scott Turner allowed Detroit to dictate the game in the first half. Uh, that is the problematic side with Scott Turner, um, to allow your, your team to go down 22 nothing. Obviously, for Washington, um, the biggest thing and the biggest takeaway from how they played against Detroit is that second-half comeback attempt. Like They cut it within one possession score a couple of times. Uh, but when you allow yourself to go down 22 nothing, there are a variety of mistakes that you made on that side of the ball in the first half. Right, So I think that Scott Turner allowed the Detroit Lions to dictate the game, Aaron Glenn to dictate the game in the first half. Uh, I think that what really hurt Scott Turner, obviously the pass rush was getting home, right? Pressure was getting in Carson Wentz's face, but it was a multi-layered thing. And I'll start with the play and then expand out to uh, to, to, um, Scott Turner, but... From the first half, man, I think the thing is, the takeaways is that the receivers are legitimate. Like, they won throughout the game, first half and second half. My concern watching the game during the game copy is that, you know, some of these guys may have not been getting open because why is Carson Wentz looking downfield and he's not able to get the ball out of his hands? That's my question. Or is he just not seeing it? That was my question. So, this these receivers are winning in critical situations. Jahan Dotson, Curtis Samuel, Terry McLaurin. They're creating stress on these these secondaries, uh, Jacksonville and Detroit. They're creating problems against against these secondaries. There's not many people who can really play man coverage against these, sec- these these receivers and really hold up against all three. You have to find your mismatch if you're Carson Wentz. You have to find your mismatch if you're Scott Turner getting these guys in position, right? First half, the first drive of the first game, Washington faced a cover one pressure look uh, with Terry right on a crosser from the slot position. And he had Curtis aligned by Terry on his, on his outside running a, a, like a mid post or a slant route, a deep slant route. And Curtis wins. Beast's defender. However, Terry gets jammed up. So it was a great defensive play, right? And, and they were able to counter and, and use the fact that they're because they're pressuring their sending cover one blitz, I think they ultimately send four and they drop two defensive ends, but they send second level pressure to really create a one-on-one situation with the running back. So basically it leaves J.D. McKissick one-on-one in the A-gap, which is right beside the center, uh, and pass protection. And because J.D. McKissick cuts block uh, the guy and actually does a poor job at at really stopping his rush, Carson Wentz is able to, or he's forced to move off of his spot. So in theory, Carson Wentz on that first third down in in the first first possession, he has an opportunity to, to throw to Curtis Samuel if that pressure isn't there. So, first off, the pressure gets to him from the A-gap, but then secondly, Detroit does a good job of jamming Terry on a drag route. So you have Terry on the first level running a drag route, which in theory, if he doesn't get jammed, the middle of the field opens up for Curtis Samuel. And Carson Wentz has a throwing lane to hit Curtis Samuel on the first down that he does beat his defender on and extend the drive. But because Detroit does a good job disguising their pressure, getting their one-on-one matchup with the running back like they want it, and then jamming Terry to slow him up on his drag on his crosser, Carson Wentz is moved off his mark. He's ultimately sacked when that jamming that jamming defensive end sees that Carson Wentz is taken off. He's the one that creates the pressure, the, the actual pressure, and 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 gets Aiden Hutchinson his first sack of the season. First play on the second drive, Detroit sent seven at Washington. Carson had an opportunity with Curtis Samuel down the field on a deep route. Uh, who knows if it would have been a touchdown or not we don't know to that degree but it could have been an opportunity for Curtis Samuel in that situation but the, the protection doesn't hold up so if you look at the first play on the second drive you see that the protection doesn't hold up and Aiden Hutchinson blows John Bates up Alex Anzalone drives into Antonio Gibson he drives him into the quarterback and Norwell is late on a stunt pickup this forced the intentional grounding that deaded the drive But you have an opportunity with Curtis Samuel with the free safety biting on Terry McLaurin for a deep shot. So whether it's a completion or not, you're not looking at 2nd and 22 or 2nd and 20. You're looking at 2nd and 10 or 1st down in Lions territory. But again, pressure forces the issue. Another call, Jahan Dawson. Double comebacks on the outside. I think this is a 3rd down within... Uh, deep in Washington's territory. This is actually the play in which Charles Leno gets beat. They're running double comebacks on that that second down call. And it's a great man call with a man pressure on the way. Actually, it's not even a man pressure, to be honest with you. I mean, excuse me, like a a, a disguised pressure. It's really just a four-man rush in a sense. But they're running man coverage. Or cover three, excuse me. And when Jahan Dotson, who, again, like I said, he's a... He's a guy where I'm I'm truly impressed with he's running these uh routes and stems and, and being able to manipulate defenders' hips. Like this is a professional receiver who looks like he's like a six-year veteran. Like when I tell you the amount of knowledge that he has and how to create separation, he does it in multiple ways. He has some physicality to his game at the top of his routes. He wins with athletic ability. I mean, in this instance, he's able to, to win with uh processing and understanding if he takes his depth a certain route as he creates stress on the cornerback, thinking that the the cornerback thinking that he may go vertical and then he changes direction and bends to the outside, he creates opportunity on the sideline for Carson Wentz to to hit him on the sideline. So on a first or a second down call, you have a man coverage situation and your receivers are winning yet again. And this time Charles Leno gets beat on the sack. So now not only does he get beat on the sack, he gets beat on the sack in the end zone. It could have been a touchdown. ends up being a safety. But Jahan Dotson wins. And Carson Wentz is looking at Jahan Dotson. The ball is getting ready to come out. So receivers are winning in critical situations. But the pass protection isn't holding up. Lastly, another situation that leads to uh, what is the uh, Aiden Hutchinson's third sack of the game. Wentz saw Terry on a go route against Jeffrey Akuda. Second and 10 in the second quarter. And... The issue here, like Curtis and, and Terry, what I believe ran a switch release. So it's essentially, when they start their route, they essentially replace each other in terms of uh, being an outside receiver and one being the inside receiver, the slot guy. But Curtis Samuel breaks his route back inside. And Terry Terry McLaurin, who is on the outside in this, in this instance, stays outside. So he keeps a go route. But the idea that switch releases to create issues and create stress on the safety to remain disciplined. And that safety bites on the in route, the breaking in route, leaving Terry wide open with a step on Okuda. Okuda wasn't able to keep up uh, with Terry. Terry was able to beat the press jam attempt and and continue upfield through accelerating. And and with his foot speed, right, runs a 4-3. With his foot speed, he's able to create stress on Jeffrey Okuda. And he has two yards of separation on Jeffrey Okuda downfield. Should have been a touchdown. Could have been a touchdown. But Sam Cosme uh, and, and, and Charles Leno, and I, I don't want to say, but I want to say that, uh, what, what happened on this play is more about Ch- uh, Charles Zeno's man who performed a spin move. He tried to rush up field with speed and converted it to a spin move, um, inside and Charles Zeno was there to defend it, but it gets in the view of Carson Wentz. So, um, all Carson Wentz really has to do, like, again, Charles Zeno doesn't get beat, but all Wentz has to do is really take a step back versus taking a step to his left or to his right. But he doesn't feel Aiden Hutchinson, who's on his backside um, or behind him, where Sam Cosme is able to defend uh, Aiden Hutchinson, but he does it properly. He's able to wash him around the arc, right? He's able to keep him out, keep his pocket clean. But for a split second, because Aiden Hutchinson wins a lot with effort, his energy is incredible. Before a split second, Aiden Hutchinson never gives up on the play. Sam Cosme thinks that the play is over and for that split second in which Sam Cosme lets up off of Aiden Hutchinson Aiden Hutchinson is able to sack Carson Wentz so it's a mixture and I don't want to put this on Sam Cosme because again he did his job initially and it's hard to really say Carson Wentz should have felt that guy but as a quarterback you do have a feel for pocket pressure especially on your blind side or something that you don't something that you can't see and it's unfortunate Carson Wentz took a step left because he sees Terry McLaurin and he sees that the safety choosing between Terry and Curtis bites on the end route. So you have a, a potential for another big play, but it's thwarted by pressure. So how is Washington really countering from that? And I think that's probably part of the problem. Um, they weren't able to handle the blitz well. Detroit sent nine of their blitzes. I think that's half. So they sent close to 20, but they, they sent half of their blitzes on first down and for Washington and Scott Turner in a situation where you're saying, you know exactly what they're going to do. How do you allow them to dictate what's happening? Like it seems as if Scott Turner said, okay, I I know what you're going to do. I'm prepared for it. Um, I'm ready for these blitzes. Send them. We'll max protect and we'll uh, keep, keep our our best guys on on routes and intermediate routes and things like that. Deep to intermediate routes. and, And we're going to bet that we beat you. Well, the receivers beat them. But Carson Wentz didn't have that much time up front. So how do you counter? Like in the second half, Washington did a really good job spreading the the Lions out. They ran empty formations. They were also able to eventually get cleaner pockets. They were able to to maneuver the pocket for Carson Wentz and move him outside and create opportunities for him with clean throwing lanes. Um, So there was plenty of opportunity in the second half that they should have been doing in the first half. Detroit's running cover zero blitzes, cover one blitzes, but what does Washington do in the second half that they could have done in the first half? You're keeping Terry McLaurin in the slot, right? You motion Curtis Samuel on a fake jet sweep or a jet sweep look, and you're creating a one-on-one opportunity with Terry McLaurin on the boundary where it's just him and and your your defender. Who are you going to bet on if you're you're an offensive coordinator and you have Terry McLaurin on your team? You're going to bet on Terry McLaurin beating that man and Terry McLaurin wins in a, in a critical third down situation, one on one man coverage on a whip route, a two yard whip route, and he takes it from two yards to eighteen. So you're winning in those situations, creating your one on one mismatches or your one on one situations for your receivers, your best receivers, and then you're emptying uh, the the formation, you're emptying the backfield where you see these cover one blisses or these cover zero blisses, uh, and and you're forcing Detroit to cover your tight ends and forcing Detroit to cover your running backs in one-on-one situations. And nine times out of 10, they're not going to win. And when Turner comes back, who can move a little bit better than Logan Thomas, and even Armani Rodgers, who can move a little bit better than Logan Thomas at this point. These guys are going to create even further problems for defenses. So for Washington against Detroit, why is Scott Turner allowing Aaron Glenn in the Detroit Lions to dictate what Scott Turner does versus why versus Scott Turner dictating the tempo, dictating the game flow on the offensive side of the football? You did it in the second half. Nothing changed in terms of the pressures that Detroit sent, uh, and then the the pressures that that was actually created. You can spread these guys op- uh, spread these guys out, and force Detroit to adjust their coverages. So cover zero blitzes, they had answers. Spread, spread them out. Empty your backfield. And if you want to send your pressures, we have our hot routes in place. They ran cover zero in the, in the second quarter. Washington is still sending these guys deep in situations. They aren't able to pick up the blitz, um, and it forces Carson Wentz to throw the ball out of his, uh, out his hands quickly. Other instances in which Washington had opportunities, uh, the pressure was getting to him, but Carson Wentz wasn't able to see the field clearly because uh, they adjusted, got the ball out of their hands quick. But opportunities happened cover two situations where Washington had Jahan Dotson streaking open in the middle of the field, splitting the safeties, distracting one of the safeties and open in the middle of the field for a shot play. What could have been a touchdown down the field, second quarter, but Carson Wentz is getting getting the ball out of his hands quickly, dumping off to Antonio Gibson in situations, right? If you want to look at that one, it was five minutes left in the second quarter. Like there was, there's, there's always opportunity for these guys and Scott Turner and obviously the pressure was able to, to impact the play calling or, excuse me, impact, you know, what Carson Wentz was able to do. But Scott Turner, if you're able to adjust in and keep your receivers in to sh- the short level, the short areas of the field, if you're able to to create these situations that's in your advantage and forcing the defense to make plays in one-on-ones in space, trying to tackle these guys, that's where you win when you see that type of pressure. You don't have to send these guys on 10 to 12 yard routes every single time. And you don't have to max protect. So they changed that in the second half. They controlled the pace. They controlled a lot of things. And uh, it's unfortunate. And that's kind of the part where we started, if you remember. Going down 22 nothing, it's problematic. You can't allow Scott Turner, uh, or Scott Turner can't allow himself to get dictated or to, to allow the, the defense to dictate what he wants to do. And be more aggressive. What they saw in the second half was the effort. I'm going I'm to a, I'm a call my plays and I'm going to force you to make adjustments. That was the effort mode that Scott Turner was in. So how do you get around it, right? Like how do you get around that that gap and that lapse where you you get down twenty two to nothing. I I think that's that's kind of ultimately where I'm getting at. Like when you when you talk about how good Scott Turner is, right? Like you see you see what he wants to do. He has the weapons to to, to win on the outside, win on the perimeter. Um, but the play calling is is what slows him up, and and the flow is the flow is what slows him up. You don't have to go down twenty-two points in order to get to get your offense going. You could be aggressive from the get-go. You don't have to like that second second half and that that sh- that window, that sixteen-point swing or whatever the number was against Jacksonville. Like that, that's a low that you can't afford to have. You can't afford to keep going down and saying, "All right, I'm gonna open my offense up at this point." Let's see the offense open up from challenging defenders to cover these guys. On all three levels of the field, and not just vertically. I understand that Scott Turner likes to press intermediate and vertical levels. I mean, third levels of a defense. But how do you adjust in game? How do you understand? All right. Well, if the pressure's here, or if they're playing a lot of man coverage, try to check my guys in short areas. Try to check. Try to check them at that point, point. and let's see who wins. I'm. Be- I'm betting on Jahan Dotson. I'm betting on Curtis Samuel. I'm betting on Terry McLaurin, and these guys are going to win for me. So grades, Scott Turner. I'm gonna have to give him a C, C plus. Um, Carson Wentz, I'll have to give him a B, a solid B. Again, the missed opportunities that he had uh, because of the pressure was getting to him. I can't fully blame him for the pressures getting to him and affecting how quickly he gets the ball out. He still stopped seeing the field uh, and, and stopped worrying about you know the the actual play developing, right? And that's kind of where that issue is. Uh, so B, still a good game, right? Still a good overall game. It's still overall good grade. Carson Wentz B. Antonio Gibson, uh, hard to evaluate. He didn't really have help up front. I'm I'm gonna go ahead and give him uh, just a C. Just for the just for the strength of he really didn't have help up front. Tight ends. Um, look, I'll give them, I'll give them a C plus. Right. I think one of the best plays that Washington had was in the second half where they ran a, another switch release. This time with with. Uh, uh, Logan Thomas and Curtis Samuel and this is where Logan Thomas scores so if you remember like I said the idea of that switch release is to create pressure or uh, uh, stress on that safety that's on that uh, that's over top of those routes and for Washington they had success in the red zone where Curtis Samuel is having from the from the outside position he's running uh, basically a breaking out route but he starts his his release far inside but then breaks back out and then Logan Thomas who's inside of Curtis Samuel does an outside release and then breaks it back in. The safety crashes on Curtis Samuel and then Carson Wentz delivers a, a a great pass. So I like how Scott Turner again when we talk about how he adjusted was really good. The switch releases he came back to. Um he adjusted against the empty and the with the empty and in the short area routes for his receivers. Jahan Dotson had a really tough catch that was a byproduct of uh, Carson, Carson Wentz and Scott Turner understanding that they got to win short uh, deep into their territory and ultimately I think they scored on so there was a ton of things that worked well for Washington right but it all happened too late so Scott Turner C uh, or C plus whatever the grade was <laughs> Wentz a solid B Gibson a C uh, offensive line or excuse me tight ends I give them a C C plus offensive line I got to give them a C minus um, they pass protect well in the the second half and that's what really saved them uh they they had their issues up front offensively but their real issues came in the run game uh they weren't technically sound they weren't on the same page from a cohesion standpoint uh they were struggling against uh their interior 54 i think had a really good game uh, Aiden hutchinson obviously had a good game but they were struggling in uh, defending run stunts uh, which created free pass to the rushers i mean the running backs the interior offensive line had issues with their zone run combo blocks. like The chemistry seems a little bit off. Andrew Norwell, Trey Turner, they're struggling. Uh, Or they have struggled, excuse me, on a good amount of occasions in terms of being able to create pushing and also climb to the second level and get linebackers, right? Uh, There's a ton of things going on with this offensive line right now where you're wondering exactly what is the fix. And offensive line, like I said, C-minus. The, the reason why it's not a D is because of how they improved in pass protection in the second half. Um, but if you're talking about that run game, they need to figure out a fix between Norwell and Turner. I'm thinking that you got to stop using them on zone runs for a good portion of the game. you got to find a way to really implement more of a gap scheme, power scheme, offense with these guys, assuming that obviously we know that Chase, Chase Ruiz is going to be out. But if Nick Martin is caught up to speed eventually – and when Brian Robinson comes back, and you can put West Schweitzer back at right guard, um, and have Norwell out there with those with that lineup, Charles Leno, Andrew Norwell, Nick Martin, West Schweitzer, right guard, and then Sam Cosby, right tackle, you can hope that maybe you can be more balanced in terms of what you run, with your play calls, your zones, and your powers, right? But with these guys, the current guys that they have, I don't think Norwell and Leno. I mean Norwell and um, Trey Turner can really move well laterally, and that'll create stress on those guys. So for me, I think it really comes down to your your scheme with those guys, and maybe that can help cause some or or improve the way that they they block up front. Um, combo blocks are blocks are an issue. Like, how are you with chemistry? Chemistry related. Like, are you making these run fits work well, or or doing a, a good enough job to really sustain these blocks and help your your teammates seal these blocks like can you help and, and in combination situations they aren't necessarily always on the same page and then like i said that second level stuff um trey turner had a opportunity to really break antonio gibson off for a big game and trey Turner's out of position on the second level he doesn't look comfortable but he's also slow and malcolm rodriguez i believe that middle linebacker number 44 is able to make a play uh, on Antonio Gibson because he's able to get underneath the the poor block attempt uh, by Trey Turner. So, offensive line C minus, receivers, huh, a they were the playmakers. And we explained already why those playmakers were very important to this offense and why they even won in situations in which pressure got home to Wince. They were winning throughout the game. They had a fair share of opportunities throughout the game to win and have big plays, have big touchdowns. So the plays are there to be made. It's really about the adjustments and how Scott Turner can use them uh, in, in situations which pressures getting home, or how do you like dial up or scheme up a play call for one particular individual. Lastly, Philadelphia. Um, we'll do a more of a, a three three keys come Sunday. I mean, excuse me, come Friday uh, for for the Philadelphia Eagles, but. Uh, this is again another opportunity for Washington and their receivers to create plays downfield. Um, I said last week one of the keys was about how they handle pressure, uh, Detroit's pressure, and how these guys are able to win their one-on-ones and things like that. Philadelphia, um, you're going to have opportunity in that secondary to create plays, uh, and and I think for Washington, Scott Turner is going to have an opportunity to redeem himself. Uh, again, that surface-level information. <laughs> Uh, we'll dive into it more when Friday comes around. But defensively, you have your hands full in a much larger way. Your thin defensive your thin defensive line, but also the way you're fitting these gaps and being able to, to stop the run has been a problem your first two games. You're facing one of the better rush offenses in the NFL over the last two seasons, especially with Jalen Hurst now. They can run pretty much – they can probably run 40, 40, 40 rushes against you Sunday and still win – by double digits if you aren't disciplined. So that run game defensively is going to be a huge key against the Philadelphia Eagles early on. Um, And that's something that we need to dive into as we prepare for Friday's show. So uh, again, those are surface level uh, insights on the Philadelphia Eagles, but we'll dive into things more when Friday comes around. I am looking forward to that one. I do have I guess i'm thinking mark bullock may be able to come on uh we'll cross that bridge when we get there no solid information yet but uh stay tuned for the keys the three keys to philly obviously we'll have some insight on philly as well and uh, things like that moving forward so with that being said that does wrap it up for this episode appreciate you all for listening um and then we'll be back on friday peace